Star Wars 7 by 7 episode number 1,234. 1, 2, 3, 4. How about that? Today, a conversation with Bobby Roberts, and it is all about 12 O'Clock High, one of the movies Ryan Johnson has cited as a prime inspiration for his work on The Last Jedi. Punch it, Chewie. I'm Amy Rathwith with Lattes with Leia, and you're listening to Star Wars 7 by 7 the only daily Star Wars podcast. Hey, Rebel Rouser. Welcome to Star Wars 7x7. I'm your host, Alan Boivod. And Bobby Roberts was previously part of the Full of Sith team, then for a while was serving as a podcast force ghost at large. And now he primarily works as a writer and podcast producer and editor for, well, I'll let him tell you about that, which he will later on in the podcast. But I reached out to him not just because he is a sensational Star Wars conversationalist, but also because he can talk film in general as well. And I've been meaning to do this for a while. I'm so happy that I finally got around doing this. But I've wanted to take a look at the films that Ryan Johnson cited. If you cast your mind back to Star Wars Celebration Europe in July of 2016 during the Future Filmmakers panel, Ryan Johnson was there and he talked about movies that he watched and shared with the Lucasfilm Story Group and said, I want you to check these out. And this was so that way they could have a common cinematic language from which to speak as they talked about The Last Jedi. And one of those movies is 12 O'Clock High, which is the one that Bobby and I are going to be talking about. Now, as Bobby says in the podcast, there's no real one-to-one comparison where you can say, this element of 12 O'Clock High is definitely going to appear somehow in The Last Jedi. However, there are a lot of interesting things about 12 O'Clock High that, with everything we know about the movie so far via the trailers and the articles in Vanity Fair or Entertainment Weekly or Empire Magazine, all the officially released information. All of that, there are some interesting parallels with The Last Jedi and 12 O'Clock High, and so those things are things that Bobby and I are going to be talking about in the podcast. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Bobby Roberts about 12 O'Clock High. Bobby Roberts, it's so nice to hear your voice again. Welcome back to Star Wars 7x7. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate that you had me on to talk about uh, this specific topic. I don't think too many Star Wars podcasts um, have actually dived too deeply uh, into what you want to dive into on this show. So I, I think it's pretty cool. And I, I, I really appreciate that you thought of me when you thought about uh, discussing old movies as they relate to uh, Ryan Johnson, who was one of my favoriteest filmmakers, even before he got the Star Wars job. Uh, I was always a, a big fan of of Ryan Johnson. Matter of fact, I was talking to my wife about this um, because she is also a huge Ryan Johnson fan. Um, and we'd never really uh, put two and two together, but most of the, I don't want to say most, but there have been very key developments in our relationship on our way to getting married um, about seven years ago now that <laughs> Ryan Johnson's films are present at. Really? <laughs> Our very first date, we saw Brick. Oh, wow. Which is kind of a weird first date movie. But yeah, it, it is. <laughs> it's, it spoke to both of us in a very uh, key way. So it sort of let, I mean, 
that's a pretty decent sign that you line up with somebody aesthetically pretty well. If like your first date movie is brick and both of you leave the screening like, man, you know, hitting on the same subjects, uh, you know, having our, our brains turned on by the same ideas. Um, and then, um, I want to say like a year later, um, after we had moved in together, one of the first, uh, you know, outings we went on after we had moved in, like we were like, we are a couple, we are living together. We are paying bills together. Mm-hmm. Let's go out and enjoy something, uh, before the, the crushing responsibility of, of adding financial burdens to our relationship starts to stress us out. Um, and, <laughs> And the first movie we went and saw is The Brothers Bloom. Okay. <laughs> so I'm like, it's like every time there's been some sort of uh, big step in our relationship, um, maybe not every time, I'm sort of overstating it, but there are key moments where like, let's go and celebrate this or let's go and take a break. Um, we find ourselves more often than not at, at a Ryan Johnson film, which is crazy. So, uh, anyway, yeah, the fact that, uh, you're having me on to talk about Ryan Johnson and to talk about Ryan Johnson's inspirations. Um, I, I want to thank you for that. It's, it's, it's a fun topic for me. Oh, well, absolutely. I'm thank you for, uh, for saying so. And I'm thrilled that you said yes, of course. And, oh gosh. So, you know what this means? Of course. I mean, yeah. it, it means that, uh, and not to jinx anything, but I think you might end up finding out in the next couple of months that you're going to be a father. <laughs> no, that's our, that's been pre-jinxed. Uh, <laughs> we both right. had that conversation. We we're like, no, neither, neither of us need to contribute to that. There are a whole bunch of people got us covered on the whole adding human beings to the population of the planet Earth deal. We're, we're going to go ahead and take a pass on that one. We're going to let the, the rest of society uh, continue on that path. So we don't have to worry about that jinx. I'm sure there are other jinxes waiting for me. <laughs> but that one, I, that one, we're cool. Gotcha. Fair enough. Um, yeah, the whole movie thing, I, I wish I had gotten to it sooner, quite honestly. And it's one of those things where even when I started this podcast and initially got listed on the community page at StarWars.com, Matt Martin had emailed me back and said, you know, I don't know how you're going to do a daily podcast. And it's been a, uh, you know, a ridiculous uh you know, shower of riches for, for daily stuff to the point where it's finally taken me until now to, to do this because this is something I've been wanting to do ever since um, Star Wars Celebration Europe when Ryan Johnson was at the Future Filmmakers panel and he listed off his uh, his inspirations for the movie, which included the one that you and I are going to be talking about tonight. It's just mm-hmm. 12 o'clock high. And I think actually this ends up being... Uh sort of serendipitous. Well, maybe that's not the the correct word, but basically the timing is good. Um, You might've wanted to get to it earlier, but I can't think of a better lead up with less than a month to go uh, to watch the last Jedi. Cause a lot of people are going to be watching star Wars movies. Um, They're going to be going through their marathons that that'll include rebels and clone wars. They're just going to steep themselves in star Wars up to the eyeballs. And I like the idea of taking an alternative tech which is uh, essentially what you're basically going to be putting yourself through on the way to The Last Jedi, which is watching the films that burbled up in Ryan Johnson's mind when he sat down to write The Last Jedi, like going and tracking backwards from that point. Like The Last Jedi is this big red light in the middle of December. Mm -hmm. If you track back from all the things that caused that light to glow and and you hit the films on the filmography that Ryan Johnson is telling you. I think that might be a bit 
more interesting of, of a run-up. So your timing is perfect on this, I think. Well, thank you. We'll call this our journey to the last Jedi, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So for those of you who have not watched 12 O'Clock High, who have not seen it before, I think we can safely sum up the movie by saying that there is a a series of bomber crews in World War II, and one of them has been sort of designated or earned a reputation of, internally at least, as a hard luck bomber crew, and Gregory Peck is a general who, A, doesn't buy into that idea, and B, is the guy who ends up taking over this bomber group and turns it around into a tremendously successful bomber group with a particular type of bombing that they have to do, daylight precision bombing, which is supposed to be the most dangerous kind of bombing out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I know that there's going to be a bit of a risk if you do go and you look up the, uh, the three films that he mentioned as being primary influences on creating The Last Jedi. There's going to be a big risk in sort of looking at the movies and trying to transplant their plots and their characters one-to-one um, now he, he named three movies, um, and he said each movie represents a distinct aspect of the last Jedi, which sort of admits that he broke the last Jedi into thirds. And you can see that that's what he did when you look at the marketing. That's obviously, uh, a setup with the, with the plot where you've got Ray and Luke, uh, then you have the resistance and then you have, uh, Finn and Rose and whatever they're doing. So you've got it broken up into three. And I think the one-to-one basically stops at the idea that 12 o'clock high represents the resistance part of the film. I think that's the one-to-one you can make. At that point, you can sort of, I don't know, call to mind general similarities, but I don't think you can straight up transplant Gregory Peck's character onto somebody in The Last Jedi. You can say there are traits from Gregory Peck's character present in a character in The Last Jedi, I think, hopefully. But I don't think trying to go one-to-one and pull a character out and then drop them into The Last Jedi is going to work. So, But, I mean, if you're going to do, you know, sort of uh, cinema archaeology, it's, it's a good thing to keep in mind. I would tend to agree. And I think after having watched it, I, I had a lot of questions that I wanted to discuss with you because whereas I don't necessarily think it maps one-to-one, I think there might be some inspirations thematically for things. And I agree with you that if you're going to do sort of a nearest mapping possible, that it overlays to the resistance portion of the movie. And I believe Ryan Johnson has said in interviews that he has looked at the, the bomber pilot footage as a you know primary inspiration for the dogfight scenes that we're going to be seeing in The Last mm-hmm. Jedi. And of course, the... 12 O'Clock High movie is remarkable for the fact that the footage toward the end of the movie where they show the the final bombing run, um, and I'll try and keep it spoiler free, uh, is actually using footage that was filmed in real life in World War II by U.S. and German fighter crews and bomber crews. Yeah, which which makes uh, some of the, uh, the earlier criticisms and complaints uh, regarding the uh, the footage that we've been seeing in the marketing. And you would think by 2017, uh, fans would know better than to try to extrapolate too much from the marketing uh, and, and judge the the final film based on what they're seeing in, you know, little 2% chunks of commercials. Uh, but there were some people going like, I don't know about this, uh, this dog fighting. Are you sure that the guy that did Looper 
uh, knows how to stage a dogfight correctly. And if he's basing his approach off 12 o'clock high, um, it pretty much gets no realer. The last time anyone in Star Wars really based uh, a a dogfight off World War II footage uh, was George himself in 76 when he's trying to edit Star Wars together. Or actually, I think by the time they got to that point, it was 77. Maybe he, maybe there was some of that dogfight footage in 76 during early cuts. I'm not quite sure. Uh, but still, that's got to say something. Like, he is going to the source. Um, and uh, I, I have a lot of confidence uh, that these dogfights are going to be uh, spectacular. I mean, he's got a great eye for for kineticism in the frame, uh, framing, uh, and, and just, you know, spatial relations he he does a thing that spielberg does very well which is he sets up the geography of a scene before he starts turning the characters and the cameras loose in it so he can ramp things up really fast and he can you know whip pan the camera around and you don't feel disoriented or lost because he's taken the time to set up the chessboard essentially before he starts kicking pieces across it um, and 12 o'clock high is actually pretty decent at that as well, which is remarkable because it was made in the late forties. And a lot of the sort of cinematic vocabulary that, that we have all grown up with, with regards to action films, uh, was not, it didn't exist. Uh, right. they were just yeah. making it up as they went at the time in the forties. Um, and, and having that legitimate footage to work from really helped. Absolutely. It did. And, you know, this brings up, uh, sort of a, an interesting tangential conversation that you know, I saw some exchanges happening on Twitter just in the last couple of days. Somebody, and and I don't have the whole gist of it, but I know you chimed in on the conversation and I know a lot of other like big name people like James Gunn and Seth Rogen like chimed in okay. on this about, um, about whose fault visual effects stuff is. And without necessarily rehashing that too much, uh, mm-hmm. ultimately the, you know, the director is definitely given credit or blame for the, the uh, performance of visual effects in a movie, but it's not necessarily only the director. I imagine. I mean, your sense would also be that VFX is helping, uh, somebody like Ryan Johnson be able to create the geography and the elements within it. Would, would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think it's primary, like the director has to have the time and the and the notion of what it is he wants before he goes to the VFX team. Like a lot of, of VFX problems come when directors sort of feel like uh, they can just drop an assignment uh, on 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 like ILM's desk, and then ILM just has to come up with it uh, <laughs> uh, with no real direction, no real signpost as to where they want to go. Um, and then they get sort of capricious with their changes. Um, they're not quite understanding what it is they've asked this team to do. And so when the team, you know, tries to work with them, uh, you just end up having miscommunications. And that's sort of what the thread was about. Um, a guy named John Campia, who used to be on Collider Video, and he left and he's doing his own movie blog thing, uh, had tweeted something essentially along the lines of, uh, don't blame the director when you see bad visual effects. Um, there are VFX teams uh, who actually have to do all that work. So it's not really a director's fault. The director's not sitting in front of the, the computer. And he basically sort of misto- misspoke because I think he'd worked in VFX before. But 
Um, that sort of statement then caused like uh, Hal Hickel at ILM to come in, uh, smack him down. James Gunn smacked him down. Seth Rogen smacked him down. Um, and uh, it really reinforced the point that a VFX team works best when they have a director who knows what he wants to see, he or she, uh, on the screen and is trying their best to make sure that the VFX work is as efficient as possible. Um, if you don't know what you want the shot to look like before you give it to them, you start introducing a lot of complications. You start giving a lot of wiggle room. Uh, and I don't think that's how Ryan Johnson works. Ryan Johnson has a very firm idea of what he wants his frame to look like. Um, and if he has an idea in his head as to what he wants these space battles to play like what a b c d e f as he plots them out because you still have to plot out a space battle you can't just turn everything over to a vfx guy and say make it look cool like there's right. a story there's a story to be told in the action um and hopefully that story also adds to characterization um and helps further the plot as well it shouldn't just be a pause break for, you know, splodies and boom booms and then you pause and go back to the actual story. Uh, I mean, the this is the obvious example, but it's one of the best examples. Like you look at you want your action to work like it does in Fury Road, where you have a huge action scene, uh, whether it's short, whether it's long, it's big. Uh, and that action scene isn't just action for action's sake the actions that are being taken within that scene are helping sort of describe what each character wants showing how they would go about doing it. You know, it, it, it sort of fleshes out the character in a way, because one of the best ways to get an idea of who someone is, is to see what they do when their back is up against the wall um, and how they do it when they actually have to spring into action. And that Ryan right Johnson, there. I, yeah. Ryan Johnson is really good at that. And 12 o'clock high is very good at that. That is a, that is basically the, the emotional linchpin of that film is watching guys in that element figure out who they are by what it is they do and how they decide to do what they do. 12 o'clock high is a film that is very much about that. It is. I mean, and the speech that Gregory Peck comes in and gives when he meets all of the airmen in this bomber group for the first time, um, ends up with this phrase. He looks at them and he says, consider yourselves already dead. Like, and, and it's like, whoa. And then he says, and, and then you're going to find doing this job is a, is a lot easier instead of having to have all of the, uh, you know, hesitations and wondering, you know, what are we doing this for and all that fun stuff. And, and yeah, it's just, it's so brutal and just straight to the point about what they're, they're ultimately about. Mm -hmm. And, and there are also, I think maybe parallels, hopefully, when I look at 12 o'clock high, especially in relation to the last Jedi and especially in relation to the resistance, which again, I, I have to imagine that's, that's where he was drawing inspiration for his part in the resistance from, I got to imagine that's what he's looking at 12 o'clock high for. It's not just, you know, the, the space fights, it's not just the dog fights and it's not just the leadership. I think it's sort of the dynamic between the members of the resistance and the resistance's leadership. I think you yes, might yes. Get, you might you might get a decent insight into the relationship between uh, Vice Admiral Holdo and General Organa yes. by watching Twelve O'clock High. I don't know which character is which. I would think just you know 
looking at Ryan Johnson's filmography, he would give you the swerve. Like you would want to think Gregory Peck's character uh, is the one that's being mapped to Leia, but it might be that he's inverted it a little. Um, that that maybe Holdo is a little bit more rough and tumble. Like Holdo is wearing a dress. Holdo's got purple hair. She's wearing like a, a stove element on the back of her head. So you don't expect steel in there. But then again, you cast Laura Dern for a reason. Um, and if you're looking at 12 o'clock high, the idea that Holdo in the books is sort of like this, I've had her described to me, I still haven't read the book, but I've had her described to me as sort of like the Luna Lovegood of Star Wars, right? Yep, yep. If Luna Lovegood grows up and starts to have aspects of Gregory Peck to her, I think that's super interesting. Yeah. Uh, and and maybe Leia is closer to the uh, the bomber that sort of bookends the film. You know what I'm saying? Like maybe that's closer to what Leia is. Or maybe Leia is also a bit of Gregory Peck. Maybe Ryan Johnson takes Gregory Peck's character, splits it in two, assigns half of it to Holdo, assigns the other half to Leia. There's a lot of ways you can go, but I think that that interaction between the crew members uh, and their leadership, I think that is also, along with the dogfighting, going to be pulled out of 12 o'clock high and dropped into the resistance. I think you're absolutely right. And something that that Gregory Peck does as part of 12 o'clock high is he talks about developing leadership skills among his subordinates. And that certainly seems like a very Leia quality in the movie, mm. considering that she wants Poe Dameron to step up and to um, to be somebody who the resistance can look to as a leader, certainly in the engagements that we're going to see in The Last Jedi. But probably Leia is actually looking further ahead for somebody who can step in when she's no longer around for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, if you want to go ahead and take because the, the actor and his name is escaping me right now, but the actor who plays <laughs> essentially the Private Ryan character in 12 O'Clock High. Um, yes. <laughs> the actor who plays that, he actually won an Academy Award. Um, and he's got a lot to work with in the film. And I would not be surprised if that character, aspects of that character have been assigned to Poe Dameron. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. I don't know if that's actually the case or not. But I would not be surprised if, you know, because everyone knows Poe Dameron was half of the character in the force awakens and Oscar Isaac just through sheer force of charm and charisma and talent sort of fleshed him out into something, you know, a, he's a whole character in the force awakens. But if you read the script, he's, he's basically 1.5 dimensions, <laughs> not <laughs> yes. even three. He's about 1.5. Uh, and Oscar Isaac sort of breathes serious life into him. I can't imagine Ryan Johnson didn't see that and go, I can, I can shade this. I can shade this quite a bit more. Like if he's going to do that with Luke Skywalker, if he's going to take the character <laughs> that the entire previous trilogy was centered around and be like, I can shade this guy. I can add another two or three dimensions to Luke Skywalker that you didn't even know you wanted until I showed him to you. Mm -hmm. I got to imagine he's going to apply that same ethos to other characters such as Poe Dameron. Um, I'm really curious what he's going to do with uh, with Rose and Finn. But that is a different filmic inspiration uh we're we're sticking with uh 12 o'clock high and uh and how 12 o'clock high sort of reflects on the resistance and i gotta think that poe's character is going to get fleshed out a little bit more I and mean, we've already seen a little bit of it in the uh, most recent bit of marketing uh where he gets a, a killer line <laughs> yes uh, although i do think that there may be 
just something from 12 o'clock high that that worms its way in the Rose and Finn story with how the ground crew folks were sneaking on board some of the um, some of the bombers for the missions that they were running on that the ground crew is just getting so jazzed up by the successful turn of the bomber group under Gregory Peck's command that they they have to get involved themselves and that they're discovering uh, there's one guy who's the the guy that Gregory Peck keeps busting down from sergeant to private and then keeps re-promoting him back to sergeant, um, who mm-hmm. turns out to be a natural gunner. And they don't, you know, find that out until he sneaks on board one of the uh, the bomber planes and ends up uh, doing very well on one of the missions they ran. And even though I warned earlier not to do one-to-one comparisons, not to try and say this character equals X, it sort of sounds to me, uh, just just with, from basic speculation, because this is... In, I think we've talked about it before on on seven by seven. This is the first film since 1980 where I'm completely unspoiled. I have no idea what the actual storyline is, but what you just described to me sounds like it could possibly be Rose's sister. Ah, okay, uh, yes, yes, like, that's right. As, as you were describing that, I was like, wait, wait, wait a minute. We've got another Tico. Don't you're we? right. We have two, we have two Ticos, uh, and that sounds sort of like uh, Rose's sister. What you're describing, that maybe to to some extent, not again, not a one to one. But as you were saying that, I was like, hmm, I wonder if he's watching Twelve O'clock High, and that's where he gets the inspiration. I I kind of want a gunner from the ground crew in my film somehow. Let's give Rose a sister. Um, that 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 could be it. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. I she was. Paige was not somebody that I had considered for that. So, yeah, mm-hmm. well played, sir. Well played. I hadn't even considered that the ground crew uh, was going to play into it too much more. Um, I mean, it's obviously uh, a considerable part of the movie, but uh, even my speculation uh, sometimes goes dark. Uh, and, and thank you for shining some light on that. That hadn't that hadn't occurred to me. That's pretty cool. See, I kind of want to watch 12 O'Clock High again, but I don't want to fall into <laughs> I want to watch it again just because it's a, it's a great movie. Um, and actually, I, I should ask you what you felt of the film as a film because it's one of the one of the best things about Star Wars, uh, and I've talked about it before on on other podcasts, is sort of tracing those uh, inspirations from each director uh, and writer back to what made them feel like they could tackle a Star Wars film, what they could put into it, and that's how you end up watching a lot of Kurosawa and. And, uh, you know, David Lean and, and that sort of stuff. Um, and it sort of leads you into these cool little cul-de-sacs where you end up watching something you might not otherwise have watched. Um, and it sort of forces you out of your comfort zone and and expands your mind a little. It broadens your horizons. Um, and this is not the sort of movie you would have normally watched, correct? That's absolutely correct. It's about, um, I'll say, 30 or 40 years out of the, the timeline of movies that I would generally watch, but I enjoyed the heck out of it. I was really very surprised in that regard. I did not expect it to be a movie that would be contemporarily enjoyable, and yet I very much found it to be. I found it to be very compelling and interesting, and not just because I was sitting there going, okay, how can I parse this? Where's the, you know, like looking for the secret codes and whatnot or anything like that. No, just as a standalone movie by itself, I was very, very captivated by it. And um, I know you'd seen it before. This was the first time I'd ever watched it, and I'm very glad to have been introduced to it essentially by Ryan Johnson as a part of this whole run-up to The Last Jedi, but you were familiar with it 
prior to me reaching out to you and saying, hey, let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. And what did, what had you thought about it? Um, I, rem- I didn't remember it being as, as, uh, as emotionally punchy as it was. And maybe that's because uh, the last time I'd seen it, I, I had been younger. Um, and there are biases that a lot of people have when they, when they look at old movies. I, a lot of people just sort of automatically assume when they watch a film. And I'm not saying this to, to, to be sort of like preachy or luxury because I'm just as bad. I've done these things. The only reason I can speak about them with any sort of authority is because it's been me. I've done that. It me. <laughs> but a lot of people will watch films and just sort of naturally assume uh, that that the depth of feeling uh, and and the sort of I don't know just sort of general aura or mood around a piece couldn't possibly have the same resonance now um, and couldn't have been made with that type of resonance then uh, just simply because we're we automatically assume that things now are so different than things could have possibly been then that there's just not, a, there's not as much nuance there. There's not as much depth. Um, and as you get older and it, it sort of feels like a thing where you almost have to get older and you have to accumulate your own experiences. You realize that, uh, people don't change all that much over the course of history. Like there are things that absolutely do change and need to change, uh, behaviorally. And we're super thankful that those changes uh, come, keep coming, uh, and hopefully that the society progresses to the better. But like, just from like an emotional standpoint, the depths of the emotions that we feel, the way that we feel them, the way that we we react to things like you know, uh, betrayal, uh, threat, uh, love, uh, triumph. Those things are pretty universal, and it doesn't matter uh, when you were born those things will echo over time. Uh, your grandparents might have only been photographed in black and white, but that doesn't mean they felt in black and white. They, the blood in their veins was red. It's just that the, the, the cameras capturing that imagery couldn't translate it correctly, but they are flesh and blood, and they felt just as strongly and as deeply as we did. And that's the thing I think people need to keep in mind when they watch older movies, that even though you know, sensor boards were a little more strict, uh, and the, the society was a little more buttoned down superficially. Um, Mm -hmm. people were were still doing their dirt. Uh, people were still in their fields, uh, the same way that they are in their fields now. It's just, it came out a little bit differently because they didn't have, you know, the technologies and the avenues to express themselves in that way. Um, and so when you go back and you watch 12 o'clock high, if you are open to the idea that these aren't like historical figures, they were just people put in a real crappy situation. Uh, suddenly that relatability jumps up like 3000%. Um, and, uh, and that's a thing that absolutely happens with 12 o'clock high. And when I watched it before, I want to say like maybe five, six years ago. So I wasn't that young. (laughs) I was still kind of old, uh, but, uh, like when I watched it then, maybe it didn't hit me in the gut as much as it did because I was still sort of operating under that that superficial bias there. Like, oh, this is an old movie, and they the the way they acted in the older days was a little more fold, formal and a little more phony. I watch it now, and I'm like, no, I, I feel this. This <laughs> there are moments in this film that hurt, uh, that hit you like a sock to the chest, and there are moments in this film where when they win. You are happy as hell that they got a win, whether it's like a small character win or like a big action win. Uh, And uh, that actually sort of if we're going back to the idea that the Gregory Peck character is going to be translated in one way or another, uh, partially or even in whole uh, to Leia. 
like we, we already know we're going to get socked in the gut. Like the marketing is not shying away from Carrie Fisher's imagery at all. And in fact, you, like you could almost suggest that they know and they are leaning into it. It's like, no, you're going to cry. You are absolutely going to ball your eyes out at a Star Wars movie. Um, here, here's Leia. Um, if there is any bit of the Gregory Peck character transferred onto Leia in this film, it's going to be waterworks. Yeah. Yeah. There's no way around it. And considering that Gregory Peck actually goes on missions with the bomber crews, Mm -hmm. do you think there's a chance that Leia is just going to be sitting back in the comfort of a resistance cruisers command center and just directing the action from afar? Or do you think she's going to get out in the field in any way, shape or form? And I don't know, like my my initial instinct is to say she's going to be in and around a command center at all times, whether that's in a ship or whether that's, you know, down on the planet. We see her looking out the doors on on crate in that amazing uh, coat jacket dress thing. Yeah, yeah. Regal, stunning. Uh, Put it in the Louvre. Um, But uh, so we know she actually gets off a ship at one time. But as as for whether or not she like she she picks up a gun and starts, you know, dumping bolts and fools i don't i don't know um (laughs) i really i sort of on one hand i really am relishing the fact that i'm completely spoiler free but on the other hand i don't know if that's actually going to help me enjoy the movie anymore (laughs) (laughs) i I know some people have very hard and fast uh opinions on that like they absolutely believe one way or another uh spoil yourself and you'll like the movie more or stay spoiler free and there's no way you won't enjoy the film more. You know, there, there are very hard and fast rules for some people. Mm-hmm. This is, I, I'm a lot more fluid in that, but with this film, like I honestly have no idea what's coming and I, I don't know how I feel about it. if it was anyone but Ryan Johnson, I think I'd be a lot more nervous and maybe I would have broke and tried to scrabble up some spoilers Um, but because it's Ryan Johnson and because I didn't even realize that I'd been completely spoiler free until like about two months ago (laughs) and I was like, that's close enough. Let's just ride it out. (laughs) Yeah. Just to the end. Um, plus, uh, Lucasfilm has been Trump tight. Uh, there's not a lot of details that have come out at all. Uh, especially if you compare it to what had happened with the, the force awakens where essentially the entirety of the plot, you know, 75 to 80% of it, uh, was known to everybody that may, Mm -hmm. um, this year, it's still I mean, you can kind of piece together what you think might be the plot based on the marketing and what spoilers have come out. Uh, but it's still fairly up in the air. And uh, it sort of excites me the idea that, you know, Leia, you know, two fist and guns at people is a possibility. I don't know if it's a high possibility, but it could happen. Uh, everyone's also, you know, super concerned as to whether Luke Skywalker is going to fire up a lightsaber. Uh, we've seen it on a poster. Is he going to fight somebody with it or is it just a training thing with Ray? Who knows? Nobody knows. Um, (laughs) I I think you can take that, uh, that, Oh, I want to know, take that energy and pour it into the films like you're doing and and we're doing right now. Um, take that. Oh, I want to know. And then pull out a copy of 12 o'clock high. And, and sort of direct that energy that way. Not only will you be watching a, a really good film uh, filled with really good performances, uh, you'll sort of be scratching that itch. Uh, you get to speculate. You get to dig in. You get to sort of uh, imagine yourself uh, 
in Ryan Johnson's shoes. Now, what do I take from here to make a really good movie? What elements do I grab and synthesize into Star Wars? That sort of deal. This episode is brought to you by Nissan and their Master the Drive sweepstakes going on now through November 27th. You can enter for the chance to win your own personalized ride inspired by Star Wars The Last Jedi. Plus, you and three friends could get tickets to the opening night screening of The Last Jedi at the world-famous El Capitan Theater in Los Angeles and, and... A limited edition Executioner Trooper collectible helmet. All you have to do to enter is go to NissanUSA.com slash Star Wars to customize a Star Wars inspired Nissan vehicle. Again, that's NissanUSA.com slash Star Wars to enter. And last but not least, here are the legal details. Deep breath. Here we go. No purchase necessary. Contest ends November 27, 2017. You must be 18 years or older to enter. It's for residents of the 50 U.S. states and Washington, D.C. only. Entries, rules, and odds are at NissanUSA.com slash Star Wars and it's void where prohibited. Very funnily enough, in the in one of the first scenes of the movie, not in the prologue scene where you see that um, that officer whose name we of course can't remember, but the yeah. the first like <laughs> flashing back to you know the actual war when the bombers come in and they're getting the injured guys off the uh, off the plane, and one of them says, "What do I do with so and so's arm?" And yeah. they're like, what do you mean? Like, oh, yeah, like his arm. Like, well, where's the rest of him? Hopefully in a French hospital someplace he bailed out. But the guy's arm, like the guy's severed arm is still on the plane. And they're like, well, get it out of there and take it to the hospital, which nobody got dismembered in The Force Awakens. It was uh, a rare yeah. thing. The only other movie where nobody lost a an arm or a leg was The Phantom Menace. I mean, yeah, you could say Darth Maul cut in half, but it's not losing an arm or a leg. You know what I mean? Every... Oh, it's, it's losing two legs. Well, yeah, or or two <laughs> arms, I guess. Yeah, but, true. I, yeah. <laughs> but every other Star Wars movie has featured a dismemberment of some kind, and so to see <laughs> Twelve O'Clock High leading mm-hmm. off pretty quickly with a reverse dismemberment, where you have the arm but not the body, <laughs> I thought was rather interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and that also seems like something uh, Ryan Johnson would do. Um, part of the reason I like Ryan Johnson as much as I do is because in every single one of the movies that he's made, he manages. I mean, they're all originals, but you can sort of tell that he's working from traditions with each film. Like Brick, he's working from the noir tradition. Uh, and Brothers Bloom, he's working from, you know, con tradition. Uh, the con man, con films, film, flim flam stuff. Uh, but he manages to subvert what you think you know about them. And then on top of that, he does actively subvert what you do know about them and so you're always feeling a little wrong-footed and that makes the film more exciting uh the idea that um you know 12 o'clock high opens with just this disembodied arm that's sort of like whoa what the hell is going on this is it puts you on the wrong foot you're sort of freaked out a little as to i mean obviously it makes sense that there would be wounds like that in world war ii but you're not expecting that to be presented in that way right i think that's a that's a thing ryan johnson does fairly well and i gotta imagine if it jumped out at you it probably jumped out at him um and and i'm curious to see how he's going to incorporate moments like that uh into star wars especially since one of the earliest things we ever found out about this movie uh was that it's weird as hell (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. it is is going to freak some Star Wars fans out. And that's not just because of whatever he's done with Luke Skywalker as a character, which I can already tell is going to freak people out. But just in general, like that's not how the force works seems to be uh, a driving sort of 
statement of purpose for Ryan Johnson mm-hmm. on this film. So uh, it's going to be weird and it's going to it's going to upset your expectations, uh, which is part is another reason, I think, why it's sort of good that I'm going spoiler free, because it's, it's going to be easier to upset my expectations when I don't quite know exactly what to expect. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. And uh, I'm really glad that you uh, you had me on to talk about 12 o'clock. high, man, this is a. Uh, this is good. I like I like that he's got us watching old movies, old good movies. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm glad that you sort of stepped out of your comfort zone and, and checked out Twelve O'clock High. Are you gonna check out a little bit more from uh, from Gregory Peck or or director Henry King? I uh, I was surprised because I thought it was a uh, uh, what was it um, Daryl Zanuck that was mm-hmm. uh, listed as the producer's thing. So I was expecting it to be a, a Daryl Zanuck thing, and it the Henry King. I was like, I've never heard of this guy in my life. So I'm definitely going to be trying to learn a little bit more about who he is. And Gregory Peck is a, a known quantity, and I, I know I've watched other movies of his. So, um, you know, I, I find him to be a very compelling actor. You know, he's definitely one of, of a one of a very few that are cut from a similar cloth, whether it's a Clark Gable or a Cary Grant, mm-hmm. like that very compelling, suave um very commanding presence. Yeah, very solid, very centered, which mm-hmm. is another thing that I'm sort of hoping that we're going to get from Leia uh, in this film, is something solid, something centered. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the movie, when we're dealing with the Resistance, is going to orbit her, hopefully, um, in the way that 12 O'Clock High, even though uh, the film is ostensibly about, uh, the actor's name is Dean Jagger, by the uh, way. Oh, there you go. Even though that's ostensibly about Dean Jagger, uh, it obviously orbits around uh, uh, Gregory Peck uh, for most of it. And I'm sort of hoping that that's kind of what we get with the last, especially since we know this is this is all we get of Carrie Fisher. This is Carrie Fisher's goodbye. Um, and so I want to soak up as much as I possibly can with her. Uh, and I want it to have some weight and some meaning simply beyond the fact that this is I'm looking at her last performance. Like I want it to to really mean something to to resonate much in the same way Gregory Peck's performance resonates in 12 o'clock high. And I'm hoping for that same thing, too. And, and to hear Ryan speak about it in interviews and talk about how he's seeing the footage now in light of the fact that she's no longer with us, um, that it has a resonance somehow just through some sheer force of magic or alchemy or just, you know, the, the glory of filmmaking. Um, mm. And it doesn't sound like this is probably the, the best thing I feel in a way. It doesn't sound like Ryan Johnson taking any credit for this whatsoever. Like when mm. he talks about, about Leia's performance and about Carrie Fisher's performance, having uh, a particular emotional resonance, especially in light of her passing, he doesn't sound like he's, claiming any sort of credit for bringing that performance on screen, shaping that performance in any way, you know, writing the words that, that she, you know, speaks in the movie. I, the selflessness and the humbleness of, of him is just remarkable to me. Have you Mm -hmm. felt like that same way about him and having been, you know, versed in his career, you know, from the very beginnings, like, do you feel that's been a consistent thing with him throughout his career? Absolutely. Um, he's also a guy that I believe recognizes, I mean, for as, as steeped as he is in film in general, um, he's absolutely working at a level so far as not just filmmaking, but film criticism, uh, film analysis. That's way higher than I could ever hope to be. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like 
he not only recognizes the the little itty bitty things that take a film, a good film, and turn it into a great film, an indelible film, but I think he also recognizes, and it's this is why it's impossible to take credit for it. He recognizes that one of the one of the things that makes great art great is that it has a magic all its own. And that's separate from the people who are helping make it, whether it's the painter that's painting it, uh, the musician who, who's uh, writing the song, uh, and the filmmakers that have come together to try and make the film as, as good as they possibly can. Great films have a magic all their own, and the director can't claim credit for all of it. Um, and good directors know that they can't. The best they can do is make sure that they got as, as wonderful uh, an array of pieces as they probably could have assembled, put it together as tightly as they could, and then let that magic organically bloom out of it. Um, and it sounds like when he's gone back and he's watched the film, as he's cutting it together, as he's making sure that it's as polished as it possibly can be for December, uh, he is seeing a lot of magic that he never overtly intended to show up, but is there. Um, and, uh, you have to have uh, a bit of humility in order to allow that to grow. Because if you're constantly aggressively trying to force that magic, uh, even, you know, despite what the film itself is trying to tell you in the edit, you're going to end up with, you know, sort of a bent damaged film. Um, it could still be good. It could still be even, you know, uh, debatably great, but it's not, you've sort of tried to force the art to take a shape that it obviously does not want to take. And I feel that with Ryan Johnson and his filmography, um, you may argue that one film is better than another. or One film didn't quite land the exact way that Johnson wanted it to. But I think all of his films have that sort of organic magic to them. Uh, there are moments in them. There are, there are you know, performances in them that are more than the sum of their parts. Um, and it sounds like that's what he saw with Carrie Fisher's performance as Leia in The Last Jedi. And it's one of the things that I really can't wait to see uh, in the film is to see how her performance is, you know, how it how it rings out um, and how those melodies <laughs> essentially to to beat this metaphor to death how those <laughs> melodies are harmonizing with the other performances in the film. Uh, I'm really curious to, to, to basically not just see the movie, but to hear the music of, of these actors and their performances uh, and, and, and their being uh, in this story. Well, I cannot think of a more beautiful note on which to end this podcast and this conversation. So I think maybe we should stop it right there and just handle the last couple of logistics, which is to say, Bobby Roberts, where can our listeners connect with you online so that they can learn more about what you're doing in this world right now? Uh, if you want to find me online uh, on Twitter, uh, as much of a tire fire as Twitter is and has <laughs> been and probably will be for the foreseeable future, uh, I somehow cannot uh, give it up. I've given it up once before. I did. I, I actually quit once before. Uh, and then, uh, like Michael Corleone, they pulled me back in. <laughs> uh, so you can find me on Twitter, at uh, Bobby Roberts PDX. Uh, so it's all one word. Uh, you should be able to find me. Um, otherwise, um, you can hear what I'm doing podcast-wise. You won't hear me. I don't talk. Uh, but I do record, edit, and produce a, uh, a film history podcast, as a matter of fact, called 80s All Over. Uh, where film critics Drew McQueenie uh, and Scott Weinberg 
uh, go through each month of the 80s in order and review every film released in that month. Um, so it's basically like, you know, those old Leonard Malton books, those big, thick old phone books oh, yeah. that Malton used to publish. Yep. It's like an audio version of that, essentially. And when then we just pick a month uh, <laughs> on the calendar, pull it out and then run through all those films and then put the book back on the shelf. And then we wait two weeks and then we pull the book back out and do the next month. Uh, so that's eighties all over. And if you want to listen to that, if you want to hear what it was like, cause those guys lived the eighties. If you want to hear what it was like to go to the theater in say May of 1980, uh, you can find out what that was like. You can find out what films were in the theaters and how they played and what effect they had on pop culture at that time. Um, we just finished, if you, by the time this goes up and you want to go and check it out, if you do want to check it out, we just finished doing June of 1982, which is the single biggest month that the show has done thus far. That includes films like E.T., Wrath of Khan, Blade Runner, The Thing. <laughs> oh my like, word. There's like another 10 films that came out that month as well. Um, so, I mean, if you want to hop on point, that's probably as good a hop on point as it's going to get. So <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> sorry. Anyway, eighties all over, uh, dot com. Uh, check that out. I, uh, record, produce and edit the show. Um, and they come up with all the genius observances, uh, and, and critical analyses, uh, and just sort of the nostalgia and the memory of the eighties as they really were and not sort of the, uh, the stranger things esque presentation of the eighties. Although I really loved stranger things season two, but anyway, <laughs> so Twitter is at Bobby Roberts PDX. Um, and if you want to hear a really cool film podcast, eighties all over.com. Excellent. Bobby, thank you again for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I know our listeners appreciate it too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Star Wars 7x7. And hey, before you force choke your captain, check out SW7x7.com for show notes, links, photos, videos, and more. And if you like what you've been hearing, support the podcast at patreon.com slash SW7x7. It's not an apology, it's destiny unleashed. This podcast is not endorsed or sponsored yet by Lucasfilm Limited, Disney, or 20th Century Fox. It is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names and pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited or their respective trademark and copyright holders. May the force be with them. All original content is copyright 2017, Star Wars 7x7. We hope you love it.